Hello, and welcome to another edition of Buckhalter's Issues and Policy Podcast. My name is Anthony Martin, and I am a former acting United States Attorney and Chief Deputy Attorney General and of counsel here at Buckhalter. I chair the firm's Attorneys General Strategies Group, and I'm a member of the White Collar and Data Privacy Practice Groups here at the firm. With us today is Jordan Crenshaw. Jordan's the Senior Vice President of the United States Chamber of Commerce and leads the Chamber's Technology Engagement Center. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me, Anthony. How are you doing today? Doing very well. It's uh, it's a one beautiful day here in Scottsdale, and uh, lucky to have another great guest like you. And I know how valuable your time is trying to follow you around uh, on uh, the social media platforms that uh, that you're active on. I see how much you do across the country, which hopefully we'll be able to get into that uh, to some degree in a short time we have together. But Jordan, can you tell us what your background is? How do you get to be the senior vice president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce? Can you tell me how what you've done to get there, and then? Uh, Tell us about the mission of the U.S. Chamber. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I'm a proud graduate of uh, the William & Mary Law School uh, in Virginia, uh, and I've been a practicing attorney as well as uh, a policy expert over the last decade. Basically, I got, got my start in environmental law, transitioned my way over to uh, privacy, telecom, and tech, uh, and then took over the entire tech portfolio at the U.S. Chamber representing the business community. So, Definitely a, a change, but uh, it's been exciting, and it, it's quite a time to be involved in the tech sector. It really is. Uh, this is this is a historical times we're living through. I think a, a lot of people are starting to appreciate it with the way AI is starting to come into our life kind of quickly, uh, you know, blasted into all of our lives here in the la- just the last couple of weeks with uh, Chat GPT and those things. But uh, it is a historical time in uh, in technology on the technology front and other fronts, but especially that for the way that we uh, that we live our lives. That even ten years ago, you wouldn't have nobody. I don't, I don't think you, uh, anybody in normal conversation would predict that we would be this attached to technology as we are now. Maybe fifteen years ago, as attached as we are, we think that there was some use of it, but not like this. Well, I mean, I, the example I always use is the uh, the iPhone that we all carry has more computing power than the Apollo spacecraft back in the 60s. And it's just amazing how exponentially quick progress has taken place just over the last decades and, and, and century. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a great fact. I hear that pop up every now and then. I'm just as still as astonished by it uh, when I hear it after after seeing it so many times. It's a that's a, an amazing fact. Jordan, what does the, speaking of the the quick increase in our connection to technology, what is the chamber's role in that uh, in the, on the technology front? The U.S. Chamber. So the U.S. Chamber uh, is the world's largest business organization. We were founded. I'm actually a Red Sox fan, so founded the same year as uh, Fenway Park about 111 years ago. Our mission really has been to uh, promote economic growth, uh, job growth in the economy, and represent. Uh, good policy for business. Coming out of the U.S. Chamber, we actually have our own technology engagement center that I lead, which uh, has been around for nearly eight years. Um, And its mission is uh, to tell the story of how technology is improving the lives of Americans, but at the same time, advocate for rational policy solutions uh, that can keep the ecosystem we have uh, now that promotes a thriving innovation economy going. What were you so you've been so the technology engagement center has been around for eight years? Yes. What were you working on eight years ago? Eight years ago, uh, we were talking issues like telecom and net neutrality, 
which I think is an issue that has uh, kept generations of lobbyists paid and kids in college for, for a few decades now. Uh, but now we've really moved on to new issue areas. It's, it's data privacy is front and center again. Um, artificial intelligence, uh, as we've seen in the news, is uh, you can't you can't see a story online uh, every day without AI coming up in some some area, uh, and uh, other fascinating technologies like unmanned aircraft becoming more prevalent. We've seen just a lot of change even in the last decade from when we started SeaTech up uh, to now. Why do we need data privacy laws? What's the the major driver of data privacy laws right now? Well, and when it comes to technology, first and foremost, uh, it's important that uh, consumers have trust in technology for them to fully reap its benefits. At the same time, we need to make sure, as we've had over the last few decades, a, a somewhat flexible approach to regulating data so that we continue to have those same data innovations that I've talked to you about, like the uh, increased computing capacity in the iPhone or AI uh, today or in the future. Uh, and so... You know, we need frameworks in place that that establish trust between consumers and the companies that are developing products uh, and services. But, you know, on even a more practical level, it's important that we get a national data privacy law because there are concerns about a patchwork of state laws that are erupting throughout the country. Um, we're now currently at uh, nine states, at least this year, that will have passed a privacy bill. Uh, and enacted it into law. If you're not including Washington State, we can get into those later. But if once those laws begin to diverge and either conflict or um, have different requirements, it's going to be incredibly difficult for small businesses in particular to comply across state lines and compete against larger companies that have that ability. And even some of those companies will have uh, issues as well. So it's why it's critically important that, that Congress get a, a single national preemptive privacy law on the books. So everyone has a clear set of rules for the road uh, and, and it actually streamlines compliance. When you're talking about small businesses, Jordan, having to comply with this and the burden that that puts on them, what is the threshold for who has to uh, comply with these, say right now, state level, with these state level laws, like how small of a business or how is that measured? But who has they, to it, it depends. You know, when California first enacted the California Consumer Privacy Act, uh, the threshold was really if you had the data of 50,000 or more individuals. Uh, but when you divide that up on a daily basis, you know, that's close to like 260 some, you know, unique credit card transactions a day. And that's a successful food truck. Uh, and so I don't think uh, we want to have uh, food trucks in the business as much as the attorney in me loves the business. Uh, we don't want to have a food truck having to deal with compliance across state lines. And I think that's a real concern. Um, you know, you know, we've seen other states have different thresholds, about 100,000. There's, you know, current privacy legislation in Congress that has some protections at that 50,000 threshold that's pretty small. But but when you really dig down deep into this issue on small business, you know, one report last year came out from ITI that said a patchwork of state privacy laws would cost over the next decade the economy $1 trillion. Small businesses taking up $200 billion of that uh, compliance burden. We did our own report uh, last year, and we surveyed small businesses across the country, and, and we asked them, do tech platforms uh, and data uh, help you compete? And 80% of them said that, that, that those kinds of platforms, whether it be social media or payment apps, uh, they help them compete with larger companies. 
And that same number said losing access to data would harm their operations. Um, and, you know, actually, I was actually in, in San Francisco at an event we were hosting a few months ago, and I was talking to the owner of a coffee shop. Um, generations of family have owned it, uh, Armenian family. And I asked him, well, what would happen if you lost access to data through a patchwork or through overregulation? And he said it would be a second pandemic because they need data and data-driven tools to speed up and make their outreach to customers more efficient. And if they don't have that, it's going to put them in a much more difficult position to compete with larger companies. And that's to be able to do targeted ads, online targeted ads through social media platforms. Everything from everything from targeted advertisements to uh, product uh, uh, improvement. Uh, they just can't get those same insights that the larger companies have. And, and once they have access to those types of tools, they're able to help get their, their business in a better spot. I actually talked to one uh, small business owner in San Francisco who even used uh, a platform uh, to raise money uh, once her business burned down. And she was able to uh, use a GoFundMe effectively to um, get her business back on the ground and use social media to, to target um, uh, communities that she would want to attract to her small Nigerian restaurant. And now she's successfully thriving uh, as well. And it's just so many different types of tools online that that require data that if you put onerous restrictions either on them or you have a compliance burden patchwork for the actual small businesses themselves, it puts them at a, a true disadvantage. Do these do these state level uh, data privacy laws, do they also affect nonprofits, nonprofit organizations? So generally speaking, the scoping has been around uh, for-profit businesses. Um, with one exception, and this is the Washington State uh, bill that was just signed into law last week, which is HB 1155. And that was a bill that was promoted as a gender-affirming abortion rights privacy bill that actually now, it, now uh, its scope is pretty much anything that has a connection to health, which could be practically anything. Um, and any violation of that bill would trigger a private right of action. Uh, that bill does uh, impact uh, nonprofits and um, even legislation that we've seen um, on Capitol Hill, the American Data Privacy Protection Act, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later, um, mm -hmm. that also would directly regulate nonprofits. Um, and, and there's some concern we have heard from the nonprofit community for two reasons. A, they're directly regulated. But B, uh, many of them rely on data-driven tools to go out and do more efficient fundraising. So even if they're carved out, there's still a concern that those tools are not going to be as available for them that they need to uh, stay up on fundraising. So Washington just Washington State just passed uh, passed and signed their new data data protection data privacy protection law. What are the other? Those are some of the tenets of it. How does it compare to the other? Four? And there's only four right now. And then Washington's the fifth, right, at the state level. So there have been six states that have signed into law effectively comprehensive privacy, not counting. Um, Washington State. California uh, started out first. Um, uh, what's different uh, between the Washington bill, though, and the other laws we've seen um, is that none of the bills that have been passed so far have actually included a private right of action, which has always been a concern, much like we've seen in the patent context and the Telephone Consumer Protection Act context, um, has been abused by the plaintiff's trial bar 
to effectively encourage sue and settle, which also disproportionately harms small business. So what uh, is what what is a private right of action for people listening yeah. that are business owners that haven't haven't are just now having to deal with this data privacy yeah. so, uh, space? A private right of action uh, is when you give individual consumers uh, the right to file lawsuits in court uh, to enforce uh, legislation. And, um, you know, one of the things that we, you know, I, I think we have concerns about, though, is, you know, I actually um, had a meeting with some small businesses in Washington, D.C. this week. And, you know, one of the concerns that we heard from them was that they said, I'm a small business in Nebraska. And I'm still getting uh, attorney's notices for potential violations of my website under California law. And I'm not prepared for this. And, and that's under very narrowly tailored laws and other subjects. Uh, data privacy, which basically goes to the core of everyone's business model, uh, is, is it's such a problem if we start seeing private rights of action emerge in states, it's going to incentivize the trial bar to really go out, file suit. Um, you know, try to uh, extend the boundaries of the laws that are out there and um, and then, you know, really try to get those settlements from businesses that don't want to have to deal with the legal fees. And right now, you said right now, Washington state is the only one that has a private right of action. At the state if, if, if you include Washington state as a comprehensive privacy bill, it's the only one. Um, other states that we think are pretty good models, though, like Virginia's consumer data protection law um, and many of the bills that followed in its footsteps, like Tennessee's bill. Uh, and um, also uh, Iowa, Utah, no private right of action. They're also pretty good bills, I think, as well, too, in terms of what we've seen out of Virginia and Utah and Iowa, where they give consumers pretty robust privacy rights, but it's enforced by that state's attorney general. And, 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 and that's really the best approach if states are going to go after uh, passing a privacy bill. And that was my that was one of my questions was who who enforces these data privacy laws at the state level if they're not if there's only one private right of action right now so that's only one one state where consumers and and plaintiffs attorneys can file on their own behalf who enforces it at the state level generally speaking um, of the states uh, that have currently had governors sign their bills uh, mm -hmm. Virginia uh, Connecticut Colorado uh, and Iowa and Utah all solely empower their state's attorney general uh, mm -hmm. to enforce the privacy law. Um, California, which is always its own thing, um, has done something different. They have their own California Privacy Protection Agency. It's run by a five-person board. It has rulemaking authority, which most other states don't have. Uh, it has enforcement authority. And then also California um, does have a very narrow private right of action, but that's only in the case of data breach. Uh, it's not in the case of uh, technical violations of the privacy law, which could get abused more often. Um, but but that's generally speaking, the, the trend we've seen is when states pass privacy legislation um, in a bipartisan and unanimous way, it's always without a private right of action. It generally tends to follow Virginia's privacy model. Um, when you see a state like Washington uh, pass privacy legislation, that that vote was very partisan. Uh, and, and and in fact, Washington state's privacy bills in the past have failed because of the, the attempted inclusion of a private right of action. So attorneys, attorneys general enforce these uh, on the compliance side, but also, you know, uh, these or, or not also, but a lot of these pop up during data breach, uh, during a data breach scenario, right, where there is actually what, 
make sure the people understand this. Again, we're talking, I want to make sure that uh, the people listening uh, understand as, as granularly as possible as we can get into yep. that have to deal with, potentially have to deal with these, these laws on a day-to-day basis now that didn't have to do it before. So attorneys general enforce these. And if there's no private right of action, if they're going through cons- potentially consumer complaint uh, system, is that how they usually go through it? Just go through the original the already constructed consumer complaint infrastructure in these offices? So so what would happen, for example, um, you know, in, in a state like Virginia, for example, mm-hmm. is that a um, consumer would effectively go to a company and say, I have certain data rights in a company. Uh, I would like to have, you know, for example, Virginia gives the right to consumers to have their data deleted. Uh, to opt out of targeted advertising, to opt out of sales of data, to correct data the companies have about them, or uh, requires their consent if they're going to use what's considered sensitive data. Uh, and if uh, a company uh, is found not to be honoring these requests, then the consumer effectively can file a complaint with the attorney, you know, the general's office. Um, generally speaking, a lot of these states will give a 30-day cure period because most of these cases these violations don't cause harm to the consumer and it's better just to have collaborative compliance. Uh, but then after that 30 day period, um, the AG's office then can go after uh, these companies uh, you know, like a consumer protection case um, and go after civil fines and things like that. Uh, so, so that's generally speaking how these are structured. And, and I think that they, the, the, the key to a lot of them is they do encourage collaborative compliance, which I think helps um, with the caseload because a lot of these cases, as I've said, there's really never truly harm. It's more of a procedural foul. Uh, and if we can fix that within a reasonable period, that's fine. And then it enables the attorneys uh, general to go out and really aggressively pursue those cases where there could be harm. Uh, and so I think it creates some some uh, enforcement efficiency um, and collaboration at the same time. Yeah, and uh, that's a great point too, Jordan. Thanks for bringing that up. Because when, when businesses are faced or with AGs, it's most, almost always businesses, some some form of business organization uh, on these consumer complaints. The collaborative compliance aspect of it is something that a lot of, of folks don't understand because they've never dealt with it. They don't understand it until they do. And sometimes they don't understand it until they had the opportunity to engage in such a scenario practice and they didn't do it. And then they they catch the... Uh, they catch the, the the rough end of the situation. So AG's offices and law enforcement uh, in a lot of different subject matter areas, initially they just want to fix the problem in several different enforcement mechanisms that they have and data privacy is being one of them. The way that you can make this exacerbate your issues when an AG reaches out to you very often is by ignoring them. Mm-hmm. And and thinking that it's going to go away, uh, and then, like you said, the thirty days or whatever the either the formal legislative uh, mandate is or the informal office policy is of how these AGs handle this to start with, or law enforcement period handles it to start with, is that if these problems are ignored uh, or completely by you know uh, sometimes things get missed, but other times they're they're purposefully ignored and it can get so much worse so quickly by just letting these sit as opposed to rehabilitating the pro- the situation immediately and working with them and getting it taken care of and moving on 
and pretty much insulating yourself, at least from maybe that that particular violation that you didn't know you were that uh, that you had. You weren't doing it on purpose because not everybody understands these. And that's one thing that you get out. You know, it's kind of your mulligan to do it and correct it, work with law enforcement to get it right and then move on with your business. But if you ignore it and, as you said, you get past that 30 day rehabilitation period, uh, then it can turn into a formal enforcement situation where you're getting a subpoena, you're getting a CID, yep. a civil investigative demand, or you're also getting, a, you may even get a lawsuit depending on what state it is. They may just sue you and sort, sort it out through that mechanism uh, to bring it to some sort of resolution, but you may get a lawsuit as opposed to a subpoena. It just depends on what the AGs, what their policies are and what the, deets, the facts of your individual situation are and what the state code is. So I'm glad you brought that up in that you need to deal with these and I want to trans- transition. And, and, I, and, I, and, I think, and I think they're really just kind of honing further on that point. I think when you look at a bill like Virginia, it, it automatically encourages collaborative compliance. Mm-hmm. When you insert the private right of action, it's automatically going to be adversarial. And there's an incentive on the part of the plaintiff's bar to go out and and, and collect attorney's fees and, and also encourage settlement. Um, and there's there's no real incentive to really get to a spot of, of of fixing the problem without causing too much cost. And I think that's really the the real real juxtaposition between both of those two. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so the, the motivation behind a private in that scenario, what you're laying out there in the private lawsuit may be monetary and not just correcting the the practice exactly. prospectively. It may be some retrospective penalty for that, uh, as opposed to looking forward and getting it right from there on. So, yeah, that's a great point you bring up too, Jordan. In these states, if you have a data breach. In a lot of these states, and this is something that people may not understand either, by state law, if you have a data breach of a certain size, and that varies from state to state, you actually have to report it mm-hmm. to the usually the attorney general. Is it the attorney general in every state? I I think it because there's more data breach laws than there are data privacy laws. There's there, there's fifty. Yeah, um, and what I'd say the majority is it's going to be the AG. Majority is the AG. I'm not exactly sure on everyone, but generally speaking, that's going to be the yeah, case. Yeah, I would say overwhelming majority is going to be the attorney general is the office you have to contact. You have a data breach over a certain threshold. And being in, a, you know, being in the AG's office for a long time and you dealing with uh, in the AG space, that still doesn't happen. Even though it's the law, there'll be a data breach. And there's a lot of a lot of organizations out there that don't always report. And that causes, again, exponentially larger problems when you don't do that to start with. And is that something, Is that, what's the landscape on the data breach reporting, Jordan, while we're on it? Is that changing at the state level or is that we pretty much solve that for now and then it's slowly morphing? I think the data breach issue is, you know, we were for a few years, we were stuck at about 48 mm-hmm. states that had a law. Yeah. We finally got the last two uh, in the last few years. I, I think for the most part, that issue is, there's not a lot of diff- much traction there on changing it. Uh, I think and I think overall, companies understand that this is more of a reporting requirement. This is a, a reaction to an event that happens to you, and uh, companies have operationalized it. I think the difference between data breach versus a data privacy bill, which gets more into consumer rights about correction, deletion, et cetera, mm-hmm. 
is that those really go down to business models and their course, and that how decisions are fundamentally made about marketing, about product development and pricing and things like that. Uh, you need data to do all those things. And if you start having wildly different approaches to data privacy, that's going to have an impact on the bottom line, and it's going to have an impact on the operations of those businesses. And I think that's why there's a lot more concern about seeing a patchwork of state data privacy bills, which I think we're starting to see now, if you conclude Washington State, as opposed to the data breach uh, issue, which I think, generally speaking, we've gotten to a, a spot where that's pretty static for the time being. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, we moved on to the, and it makes sense, logically, that we've got, okay, we have the data breach issue at least for now, taken care of to some, you know, diminishing returns on dealing with it legislatively and policy making wise. And now you're dealing with the data privacy laws helps mitigate the damage that can be done when a data breach happens. So you're right. kind of working backwards there to initially put out the, the fire policy wise, and then let's try to try to mitigate uh, the causes of it or the damage that can be done initially. So, Right now, legislatures are starting, some of them go six, eight months. Some of them feel like they go around the clock. I mean, around the year, sorry, around the clock, around the around the calendar. Um, and we've got six passed and signed right now in the right. across the US. What else, what other states are getting close to crossing the finish line, at least legislatively, and and get to the governor's desk? So uh Montana, uh, as of today, uh, this recording, Montana, uh, Tennessee and Indiana all have bills that are very similar in nature to Virginia's privacy bill that have passed both houses of their legislatures unanimously. We also uh, have seen uh, two other states that are going pretty quickly uh, that are still active. Uh, the state of Florida uh, has a bill, SB 262, um, that it would regulate some social media company uh, policies and, and how government interacts with them. Uh, but for the most part, their bill does have a Virginia-like privacy component to it within it as well. Uh, they've got very little time left in that session, so we'll see if it passes or not. Texas, uh, which is one of those states that only meets every other year and meets for just a couple months in terms of the House, uh, has a bill, uh, HB4. I actually had a chance to testify in favor of it um, and wrote a letter in favor of it um, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, HB4, in many ways, is, uh, is reminiscent of the Virginia privacy bill. And um, once again, encourages collaborative compliance with the state's AG and also has a, a pretty good balance of, of data privacy rights uh, in there, which, you know, I, I think those are some states to look at. Um, but I think you juxtapose that too to states that are considering this congressional bill that got through committee last year, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act which would encourage private rights of action, which would, could potentially cut off data flows outright uh, if, if not fine-tuned. And only three very, I'd say, deep blue states are considering it. Um, it's uh, Massachusetts, Illinois, and New York. Uh, overall, predominantly, it's purple and red states are taking up the Virginia model um, and, and, and what we're seeing. So uh, just a little bit, I think, of a flavor of kind of what we've seen uh, this legislative session. A few other bills like Kentucky and Oklahoma had at least one house of their legislature passed bills that had some opt-in requirements across the board for using data and getting consumer consent before you use it. Those sessions have ended. Those bills didn't get across the finish line. Um, but, but yeah, obviously those uh, states that meet for nearly the whole year, like Illinois and Massachusetts, we're going to keep our eye on them to see how far they move with those bills, too. On the federal side, speaking of 
of that. What what are we seeing? Uh, just to explain to people, what's the what's the landscape on the federal side right now? Where are we in that uh, that ball game that's going on in D.C. of getting data privacy, national data privacy passed? So uh, on the comprehensive side, um, we saw last year in the 117th Congress a bill that was co-sponsored by uh, Catherine Morris-Rogers and Frank Pallone, who were the two partisan leaders of the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives, um, the, the bill that effectively um, would uh, empower the FTC to determine types of data that are off limits to collection. Um, it would in, in, incorporate a private right of action because there was a compromise uh, of private right of action for some degree of, of preemption uh, between Republicans and Democrats there. Um, I think there is concern that the preemption language, if you if you dig deep into it, um, is not that preemptive, um, has 15 different state carve outs. Um, and I think even oddly enough, uh, for example, you have two very similar laws on biometrics, one in Texas and one in Illinois. Um, but Illinois was carved out. Texas is, was preempted. Um, what is what is, pre, what is a preemption? What is preemption, preemption is when the federal, when the federal government and Congress effectively say we're going to regulate here and the states can't. And, and 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 that's key if you want to prevent that patchwork I was talking about. So they have uh, to say they have yeah. to say that was an example of what a, a what an effective what a blanket preemption language what that would look like. So and effectively, what you need to do is say in your bill explicitly say. Uh, Congress here preempts or supersedes uh, any state or local laws in relation to a specific subject matter uh, or what's covered in the bill. Uh, that word relation to is, is key according to Supreme Court cases uh, that we've seen uh, across the board. Um, there are a lot of federal laws on the books, for example, the FAA Act, um, you know, preempts the entirety of aviation in the United States, uh, has very broad preemption language. Uh, we would make the argument that the data economy, there's nothing more interstate than that. Mm -hmm. um, you also need to have strong preemption language. What we see in the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, though, is it only says what's covered in uh, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act is preempted in the states. So that's generally kind of considered kind of the second tier level of preemption. Re related to is generally uh, considered the gold standard covered by is kind of that second tier down where uh, Congress really needs to make it clear in other areas that they're preempting state law. And I have concerns, though, with those 15 different state carve outs, um, that that's just going to show that Congress really is not preempting the whole field. Um, and so I think there's some concern on the part that uh, industry will see a private right of action. There's a guarantee there that it'll have to face, but we're not guaranteed there's going to be full preemption. Are there other what? examples of other federal laws that have state carve outs that uh, as prolific as 15 different states that they carve out. Do you know of one? You know, I'm not aware of 15. I mean, I know generally speaking, California gets carved out of a lot of environmental laws to do their own regulations. But um, the, the 15 number, I think, is actually pretty large uh, when you take a look at it. And, and one of the other things about it is it would preempt, not preempt, sorry, it would uh, explicitly carve out consumer protection statutes in the states. Um, so, you know, it's conceivable. What would that have? Well, it's conceivable, you know, under these miniature unfair and deceptive trade practices laws that states have that, uh, and half of those also have a private right of action, that you could actually set, see a, a enterprising plaintiff's attorney in a state that has that PRA 
say, I think your data practices are unfair and deceptive. And I'm going to sue on the same issues that are in the federal privacy bill, but I'm just going to wrap it up under the elements I have to meet under an unfair and deceptive trade practices claim. And, and that happens. That happens. Yeah. Uh, state AGs are very, they're so effective now. Uh, they've really hit the uh, a high point of understanding how to, how to uh, influence policy and enforcement across the country through the Consumer Protection Act, right, Jordan? And exactly. And, and they I think now they, they pull these into UDAP. I'm sorry, let's not do this. Through Consumer <laughs> Protection Act cases and unfair and deceptive practices acts, uh, they pull these data privacy violations into those statutes, into the jurisdiction of those statutes, because that's where they have plenary, almost plenary power. Mm -hmm and a lot of monetary enforcement uh, authority, and it can really drastically wipe out a, a business under that. And you see that across the country already. So while anybody that, how would you not guess that that's going to happen going forward? Oh, entirely. And I think, and, and, and I'll, I'll set the rest straight too. There is a role for state AGs in a, in a federal privacy law. Uh, I think our concern is that you're gonna have multiple standards and you're gonna get yourself in a new patchwork of laws. Um, but I do think, you know, and the business community is supportive of this as, as well, uh, state AG should be able to enforce a federal privacy bill. Uh, we think that there is a role for them uh, to enforce the actual requirements under the elements of the federal data privacy bill. And, and that way they can work to protect their own citizens and their states. Uh, and you can also let agencies like the Federal Trade Commission uh, handle enforcement on a federal level for those truly national bad actors who are acting out there. Um, so uh, I think that's the way we find balance uh, in enforcement. We think it should operate uh, is that state AGs and the FTC should should play a role in enforcement. Um, but, yeah, I think there's concern if you, you begin to carve out so many state privacy laws, including consumer protection statutes, uh, that it's going to just create a new patchwork. Yeah. So under the under, under the, the bill or the situation that you're describing, just so the people understand listening, they the federal government would pass, Congress would pass a federal data privacy law that would carve out states, specific states right now, mm -hmm. specific states, data, current data privacy law. So they could still enforce them, even though they were different, substantially, significantly different than the federal law that would be passed in this situation. That That's correct. So Illinois would get to keep its uh, biometric privacy bill. That's everything from like facial recognition and, and things like that. California even gets a narrow carve out uh, for its data breach provision of, of its current law, which that's the part that has a private right of action. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and oddly enough, California is the only um, uh, state that actually specifically gets named uh, its own agency that still has the ability to enforce uh, as well. So, uh, you know, I think, I, I think what we're dealing with right now is, is we're going to have states continue to do their own thing. Um, and the other issue too, is this Washington state bill or law. It's a been sold as a health privacy bill. And is that going to be considered covered by the federal comprehensive privacy bill? And, and so that's another area too, where we're just not sure if the preemption language is going to match up there or not. Now, look, I'll say this. This was last year's bill. Uh, it's likely that the bill that is introduced in Energy and Commerce could have changes. We're not sure about that at this point. We're all kind of waiting and seeing. Um, but but yeah, un under under the bill that was put forward last year, um, there was concern that, that that would happen. Now, 
I'm going to juxtapose that, though. There was a financial services privacy bill that was marked up this year. Um, uh, Patrick McHenry, who leads the House Financial Services Committee, is a Republican, put forward an, uh, a, a data privacy bill as well. Uh, but what uh, he did is he basically clearly said, we are superseding uh, laws in this area. No carve-outs, no exceptions, uh, and also didn't have a private right of action as well. So that's the approach. How does he describe the area that they're? Yeah. So effectively, uh, what uh, the McHenry bill does is it basically says that the bill uh, will supersede any statute or rule of a state uh, with respect to the collection of personal information um, or uh, the access deletion or individual privacy rights uh, with respect to personal information. So it, it's it's a it's a broad uh, based preemption language that's used. Uh, as opposed to saying what's ever covered in our bill, and um, we're also providing a list of exceptions. That's not the way the House Financial Services Bill works. And I would argue at least has better footing for a preemptive single standard when it comes to the financial services piece, though. Most of these bills in, uh, that come through Congress, so they come through energy and commerce and financial services would be a uh... That would be an anomaly that the, it's not a committee that usually brings up comprehensive data privacy bills. So, so we currently federally have a few sectoral privacy bills, and they're handled by different uh, committees that handle that specific sector. For example, there's the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which uh, currently regulates financial privacy uh, of financial institutions. So that would go through the House Financial Services Committee um, and, and its corresponding committee in, in the Senate. Um, for more economy-wide comprehensive privacy legislation, uh, that would go through the Energy and Commerce Committee on the House side. It would go through the Senate uh, Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee on the other side. So, and then also, you know, from a sectoral perspective, there are other federal laws too, like HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance Portability mm -hmm. and Accountability Act, which has the those uh, requirements in there that you fill out when you go to the doctor's office. There's the Children's Online Privacy Act. Um, but uh, depending on the the uh, subject matter of the bill itself, it's going to have that's going to de uh, determine which committee is going to take that bill up. Right. Yeah, that was my and my my point being that there are there are private there are sections of you said sections there are privacy bills in certain subject areas subject matter areas already at the federal level. There's just your point is that there's no comprehensive data protection data privacy legislation in the federal or there's no federal law dealing with comprehensive data privacy protection right now. And that's what we're talking about. We are, that's, that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, you know, I think, as I said, we've have, we have a sectoral health privacy law on the books. We have financial services, we have kids and then filling the gap. And, and it's not to say there's not protection out there. Um, mm -hmm. The federal trade commission does also like state AGs have the authority to go after unfair and deceptive practices under what's called section five of the FTC act. Uh, and and we've seen in the past where, for example, if a company is found not to be honoring its privacy uh, promises in a, a privacy policy, the FTC will go after them for a deceptive trade practices claim. And then they'll generally file suit, get a settlement. It'll be a 20 year uh, uh, settlement in which companies have to live up to certain standards. Uh, so there is to some extent some enforcement even outside um, having a comprehensive privacy law, but there's still not the certainty that's needed. Or the preemption that's needed uh, in uh, an FTC action that you can get from a federal privacy law. Right. Yeah. So the, the FTC does a similar. It's a similar uh, uh, strategy as what state AGs do, and they pull mm -hmm. it under consumer protection 
uh, FTC, of course, has very broad consumer protection authority at the federal level under uh, unfair deceptive trade practices, uh, uh, tenants of those laws, of that regime. And they can pull they can pull data privacy issues into that, and again, eff effectively um, litigate that uh, against companies that are uh, that come into the come on the radar. So the FTC does this right now. Jordan, these keeping up with these state privacy laws, this legislation, it's tough, and it's tough for somebody that's running a business. Uh, does the chamber have a resource that people can go to that helps that would help them like a, a all in one stop keep up with what's what's going on out there in these legislatures across the country? So we actually, if you visit us, um, we actually at our CTEC website. If you visit us at AmericanInnovators.com, uh, we actually have a map uh, that uh, will update every week that talks about the status of the privacy bills in the state. So um, yeah, definitely encourage everyone listening today to follow up with that. Yeah, it's very handy. I was, I was uh, looking at it before, before we came on today and uh, yeah, it's very handy, very easy to use. And if that's, if that's something you're looking, I wouldn't surf around on it in my, you know, in my spare time, but if that's something that you're looking at uh, with your business, your, your company uh, it's, it's a great starting point. And then you can dive deeper from there as needed. But it's a, the chamber, and the, what is it, the American Innovation Project? Amer AmericanInnovators.com. AmericanInnovators.com. Yeah, it's a wonderful starting point, jumping off point, as they, they say in corporatees, uh, to start your research on this. Jordan, let's talk about AI real quick. So artificial intelligence, what, what is the chamber, are they looking at, are you all looking at artificial intelligence and what regulatory regime we're going to need to protect citizens for things that we probably don't even, I wouldn't say probably don't, flat out don't understand all of the, the issues that are going to arise or that have already arisen with artificial intelligence, uh, with the trajectory, the rapid trajectory of which we're developing AI. So AI is going to be the, the transformational technology of our generation. Um, you know, it is estimated to have at least a $13 trillion impact on the global economy. Um, it is going to, and it already is being used in the context of um, helping um, staffing shortages at hospitals, uh, you know, helping nurses triage patients. Um, it's you know being used right now to help tailor vaccines to more quickly get them to market. Um, it's being used for financial inclusion and also uh, being used for public safety, for example, plotting out where wildfires are going to go next or where uh, you know storms are going to go. Um, it, it's as simple as actually, uh, is even as the background some of us have on Zoom, those are all based in AI to make sure it looks like where you're, you're at where you're at. Uh, so on a practical level, it, it's already impacting what we're doing. Uh, that said, um, there is a rush uh, in places like Europe and uh, Brussels and even in Sacramento to, to regulate because there are concerns about things like bias uh, and harms that could come from AI. Um, we also are dealing with strategic competitors like China, who don't have democratic values like us, uh, who are going to rush through development to try to beat us in this technology. And in many ways, they're already out patenting us uh, on robotics and, and, and AI tools. Uh, and so what we did at the chamber was we put together a bipartisan commission to really look at issue areas and policy recommendations that could be made to help the U.S. Uh, responsibly lead uh, as it comes to AI. And, and what we did is we brought together two former members of Congress, 
uh, Mike Ferguson, Republican from New Jersey, former Energy and Commerce uh, Committee uh, member. Um, uh, also, John Delaney, Democrat, former presidential candidate, former congressman from Maryland, uh, founded the AI Caucus on the Hill um, with Republicans. Um, and we brought together experts. We had field hearings throughout the world, including London, meetings in Brussels, Silicon Valley, Cleveland, uh, D.C., and um, even Austin, Texas. And what this commission did is it basically rolled up its sleeves to answer three questions. How do we regulate AI? How do we prepare the workforce? And how do we compete? And uh, we came out with a 110-page report that really echoed the point that a failure to regulate correctly uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence is going to harm trust and it's going to harm deployment of the technology. Uh, we make recommendations, for example, that um, uh, there are agencies that already have authority to go after harms that could be caused by AI. They should use them now, uh, but they shouldn't read new authorities uh, into uh, their their uh, legislative um, uh, authorities. And, and Congress really needs to do an inventory uh, through a risk-based lens uh, of, of what laws are needed to add on to that. Other areas too, um, you know, we encourage uh, STEM education, um, uh, reform for H-1B visa processes to get talent so we can, you know, make sure that we have the workforce ready um, and for the 21st century economy. And finally, other areas too, um, you know, we need to make sure we invest uh, in R&D. Uh, we need to make sure that we um, also uh, uh, take a look at our uh, IP and patent system in the U.S. to make sure we remain competitive uh, with countries like China. Um, because, you know, as our adversaries are saying, the country that leads in AI is going to be the country that leads the world. Is that where is that report available? So you can actually visit that. It's at uschamber.com backslash AI commission. And that's li it's live right now. It is. OK, so they can see it already. I don't know if it was pending or has already been released. What uh, what's on the horizon for you, Jordan? What do you have? What do you have going in the next few months? Uh, so I think what we're going to be dealing with uh, is waiting to see what Congress does on federal privacy legislation. Um, you know, we still got a few states with those year long legislative sessions uh, to go. Um, and, you know, will states like Texas and, and Florida pass uh, their privacy bills? We'll continue to be, be looking at those states. Uh, and then also, I think, as you mentioned, with artificial intelligence, states are starting to look at this now. Um, federal agencies like the FTC um, are going to be doing rulemakings on privacy and AI, um, as well as a lot of work coming out of the White House here. So uh, the, no shortage of work in the tech space, uh, I think, uh, for the next uh, uh, few months. But AI and, and and privacy are still going to be front and center. Fantastic. Anything else you want to you want to bring up while we have the you have the platform, Jordan. We hit on a lot, man. I thank you for your time and uh, your flexibility and bring up all these things that I have such so much interest in that uh, you're an absolute expert in these areas. So thanks for your for your for your expertise and for sharing it with us. Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, happy to do it. Um, I think it's important. Once again, everyone, we need to get out and push for a truly preemptive privacy bill nationwide. And if you want to learn more about what we're doing at the Chamber on privacy, AI or tech uh, and anywhere else in these fields, uh, visit us at AmericanInnovators.com. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. And again, it's Jordan Crenshaw, and he's Senior Vice President of the United States Chamber of Commerce and leads the Chamber's Technology Engagement Center. So thanks, Jordan. We appreciate your time today. And everyone that's listened, this has been Buckhalter's Issues and Policy Podcast. We look forward to joining you for future episodes. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.